You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, this is a groupthink free zone here at the conservative conscience. Welcome back to a new week. Monday, April the 9th, with Congress finally back in session after a long two-week break, after they shoveled all the manure from their barn onto the American taxpayer, and their work was done. So they went home, and now they're back. And uh, yeah, they they pretty much have nothing left to do for the remainder of the year other than pass a massive trillion-dollar farm bill, which will come up soon. But anyway, happy CBO Budget Report Day. For you nerds out there, that's pretty much the only thing exciting going on to start off this slow news week. And and by the way, you know, just about CBO, as I'm recording here, I'm, I'm just looking at the report. It's a, you know, 165-page document. Every year, they put out an annual budget and outlook, an economic outlook report. A, a lot of people are asking me, well, Daniel, when could you trust CBO? When could you not trust them? It's very simple. CBO is a great resource for quantifying what is. What is happening in terms of federal revenue and spending? That's that's a fact. It's pretty hard to fudge that. When it comes to projecting um, revenues for the future, projecting the size of economic growth, inflation, I mean, that's something even people with greater expertise than CBO can't do. I mean, so as we saw with predicting healthcare, health insurance premiums, obviously CBO was a joke with that. But in terms of what the budget is, uh, you know, if anything, when it comes to spending, they've never overstated it. They only understated. So when you see the spending figures from CBO, you know it's at least that bad. And just, you know, I haven't written about this yet, although I do have a morning article that closely echoes this. The biggest story emanating from this report is interest on the debt. I mean, that is game over. The interest payments we pay on the debt are slated to surpass military spending, all defense spending. And that, by the way, got a big booster shot recently. Is It's slated to surpass that by the year 2023. So I've been touting in some of my recent articles that it's going to happen before the end of the decade. It looks like it's going to happen in just five years. It's going to surpass Medicaid spending, at least a federal share of it. You know, the states have tremendous unfunded liability on their side, but at least from the federal end, it's going to surpass that in, where is this? 2020, just two years from now. Two years from now, more money is going to be thrown in the garbage, paying off the interest on the debt prominently to countries like China than even on the dumpster fire Medicaid program, which is expanding rapidly. You know, Medicaid spending is up 10% this March relative to March of 2017. And yet interest payments are the fastest growing element of the debt. That's your national security concern right there. That's your economic concern. That's everything. That we are going to reach a time not, oh, this is going to happen in 40 years from now. 
within five years, could be even three or four years, where we will be spending more on interest on the debt than the military. And it's not because we're not spending a lot on the military. That is game over. Now, what I want to talk about today is to lead off this week before Congress really gets back into session, things start heating up on a number of issues, and I drive myself nuts trying to decide what to prioritize. Things are slower, and still the biggest news story from over the weekend is Syria. Once again, we have the yellow journalism from the media, where the media drives our policymakers into military action without any understanding of the broader context. Who are all the sides in the civil war? What is the likely outcome? What is the strategic interest? What is the strategic outcome to anything we would do? And looking at the interaction of all the players in the Middle East rather than one thing in a vacuum. Oh, the Bloods are fighting us, are, are doing bad things. Oh, the Crips are doing bad things now. Let's, do, let's go after them. And no understanding of the totality of our actions and their results. So I wanted to use this as an opportunity to discuss what I think is happening in Syria in particular, in foreign policy in general, and the complete dyslexic use of our military priorities as it relates to foreign policy and our border. Meaning the problems we actually have right at home don't register But every time something blows up in the endless tribal Sunni, mainly Sunni-Shia, 1,200-year civil wars, somehow we have to get involved. And unfortunately, like, like really with domestic policy, but I think it's even more pronounced with foreign policy, there is no strategic vision on the right. We have this false dichotomy between the so-called neoconservatives and, you know, your Pat Buchanan's, your Ron Paul's, hardcore libertarians. It's like, well, Daniel, are you an interventionist or an isolationist? And the way I think I want to approach that for today is kind of with the analogy of the Bloods and the Crips. If I were to tell you if the, the, the Bloods just did something egregious today, killed a bunch of people in their endless war with the Crips, Right, two famous gangs in America still operating, uh, been around for several decades, really since the 70s. And I said, we're going to go all out against the Bloods. And then three days later, the Crips do something terrible. And I said, we're going to go all out against the Crips. Well, then you're going to ask, Daniel, which one is it? I mean, who are you going to tip the balance of power towards at any given point? But it's even worse than that in the Middle East. Because it's not just the Bloods and the Crips. You got the Sunni insurgency everywhere that was most recently embodied through ISIS. But, it, but don't focus so much on ISIS. That rubber band effect to the Shia hegemony through the um, Alawite, you know, Assad-led government backed by Iran and Russia the pushback to that is always going to be there. We destroyed most of the command and control of ISIS, which I'm going to get to in a, mid- in a minute, was not such a smart thing, ironically, to get involved in, in it as much as we did. But now, you're always going to have this Sunni pushback. And then Assad's going to be doing things back to them. So, a couple years ago, 
and I'm going to link to this in show notes. I wrote a Fox opinion piece. This, this was, by the way, back when they still took my articles before what I, say, what I suspect, Elaine Chow, who's the wife of Mitch McConnell, she's on the board of uh, uh, News Corp. She must have gotten wind that I was writing stuff for them and you know told them to stop. But I wrote a column basically titled, I'm forgetting the exact title, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes here when, when, I, when I ring it up, Let Allah Sort Out the Syrian Civil War. And the point was that there's no there's no way to be hawkish, so to speak, on one without being dovish towards the other. Until and unless you could come up with a way of vanquishing all of the bad players, installing a sustainable good player, and then that sustainable good player will represent somehow all of the tribal factions in a way that you won't have endless strife that you're now going to have to own based on your military intervention. It's not even worth discussing it. Meaning, you can only have a question of whether we should intervene or not intervene, whether there's a possible intervention to be made, and then you say it's worthwhile. Let me give you an example of what's not happening, but what theoretically could happen. Let's say Russia invaded Europe. Okay, let's say they invaded Bulgaria, Romania. Stable allies of America that have a civil society, that have a government of you know, relatively homogenous people that should sustain itself, is currently sustaining itself, and an external threat comes from with without from outside the country, attacks that country, sacks the government, takes it over. We could th- theoretically go, so to speak, full force against Russia, this is just in a hypothetical, and kick them out, and then you revert back to what was there before. And you will sustain your sacrifice. Then it's just a question, is it worth the money, the lives that we might lose fighting the Russians? But there's what to debate. There's what to talk about. And this, by the way, is why we have a congressional debate. What's interesting now is, you know, we're having this discussion. What is Trump going to do within the next 48 hours? What's amazing is no one's talking about Congress. I mean, if you believe we need to get involved and dislodge Assad because of the likely reports that he he uh, used chemical warfare, then we need a declaration of war. And the reason why we need a declaration of war is so we could better articulate in a public debate what is it we, we're doing and what is it that we seek to accomplish and how we're going to accomplish it. In Syria, as is the case in Iraq, as is the case in Afghanistan, you don't have nation states there. They're sand dunes with 1,200-year tribal warfares, most evident through the Sunni-Shia fighting, but, you know, as well as other factionalism. And all the players are a reflection of those facts. So it's not just a matter of, hey, Daniel, are you for the Bloods or the Crips? It's the Bloods have a constituency, the Crips have a constituency backing them, and they're always going to be fueling them. And then each one does atrocious things to the other side, as well as... Other people may be caught in the middle. But there's no way we could save those people in a sustainable way without endangering our own security and our own troops for no reason. And there's nothing we can do for them anyway. That's the problem here. We're in there supposedly now 
in order to prevent a resurgence from ISIS. Which, again, if you understand the dynamics of Syria and Iraq, it's kind of laughable. Because you had, precisely because of the Shia hegemony that we helped create with the Iraq war, where basically Iran controls Baghdad, you're always going to have a Sunni pushback. So whatever group comes along to gain their favor, they're going to be the flavor of the day. So, you know, I warned at the time, it started off with Assad, the red line, the red line. Oh my gosh, we got to get involved. Look, we, we could all keep using this talking point about how stupid Obama was to create a red line and how much of a fool he made himself and made America look weak by having Assad cross the red line and not enforcing it. But the bottom line, as I said at the time, I didn't agree with Obama, but my goal here, and it always has been, and you know this from me, whether you agree with me or disagree with me, I don't take cheap political shots. It's often very easy to make fun out of the opposition for doing something, but I don't just do that. I offer a full vision of what I would have done, what I would do now, and what I wouldn't do now. So it's very easy to say Obama made a red line and, and then didn't enforce it. But the bottom line is, I still said at the time, even though he looked like a fool, there's nothing to enforce. We still shouldn't get involved because it's even worse to get involved. But then we had ISIS, which is the pushback to Assad. They were like, oh my gosh, we got to do something about ISIS. I mean, people are pulling their hair out. We must do something about ISIS. Look at all the killing. Look at the beheadings, the torture. The I mean, the media sucked us into it. So we got involved in that. And I, I've, I've been warning for years, ever since I wrote that original Fox column, I've been warning here when we started, since we started Conservative Review at the end of Obama's tenure, the first year of Trump's tenure, I said, ISIS is already on the decline. ISIS is the easiest thing to defeat. And when I say ISIS, I don't mean the global jihadists that adhere to their ideology and sometimes swear allegiance to them throughout the, the world. I'm talking about the caliphate proper in Syria. They, unlike Al-Qaeda or ISIS elsewhere, they actually created a state. So we could easily destroy that. I never had doubt that in short time we would destroy their caliphate with you know limited casualties. But here's the deal. I warned that the entire time we were creating a corridor for Iran. We're basically fighting Iran and Assad's problem. It was their problem. And notice the Russians didn't get so involved with Assad until after we cleared the path with ISIS. There was a while it was very touch and go with Assad. And the Russians were very tepid about what they were going to do. Because, again, the Russians do everything logically. They want Assad as a client state once he's there to go promote their agenda. But, you know, the minute they think he's going to fall, they're not going to sit and get sucked into the civil war and fight the Sunnis. They, they, they're all too familiar with that. They, they're not going to own the dumpster fire. They're going to use it for their advantage, which is what they're successfully doing now. We got in there and basically became the Shia Air Force in Iraq. We, all the windfall to Assad in Syria was because of what we did to clean out ISIS. So now all the people that ignored my warning back then, like, Daniel, we must get involved now to fight Iran and, and Hezbollah and Assad and, all, and the Shia axis, backed by, by Russia. 
Well, yeah, but <laughs> I warned you before when you were fighting the Crips that the Bloods are going to have a resurgence. So now we do that. Guess what? Guess who's going to take over? Sunni Insurgency 3.0, whatever you want to call it. It won't be ISIS, it'll be something else. You're always going to have to own that problem. It's just dumb. So, you know, it was say, oh, they, they use chemical warfare. But w- what do you want us to do? Kill Assad. And then we're like, look at what ISIS did. Kill ISIS. Well, which one is it? Let, let me put it to you this way. Last week, we lost one of our best soldiers, a Delta Force operator, supposedly going after an ISIS target. So they supposedly don't really exist, but, you know, pockets of of resistance, okay. So that's why we're there. And we lost someone doing that. What, so now, a week later, we're going to then fight the people that are fighting ISIS? And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say Assad's some great guy, you know, Oh, he's fighting ISIS. It's like saying the Bloods. Daniel, are you telling me the Bloods are great because they're fighting the Crips? That's why I'm using this analogy today. I just want to bring out the shallow nature, the puerile politics of intervention now. Uh, The false dichotomy. Oh, if you don't do this, you're pro this. If you don't get involved in the Al-Qaeda Houthi civil war in Yemen, then you're pro Iran. We, we spoke about that last week. It's the same problem, or two weeks ago. It's the same issue that we have in Yemen, we have in Syria. There is no good play to be made. So rather than tipping the balance of power towards one another, I believed, especially when Trump took power, when, when ISIS was already on the decline, I was saying, look, I understand if you felt they threatened the Yazidis, there were problems especially in Iraq, but now that it was just a problem in Syria, quit while you're ahead. They're like, no, we have to stamp out every last vestige of them. I'm like, Daniel, don't, don't you agree what you want ISIS alive? Well, I don't want any bad guys alive. But the reality is they're all there and they all have constituencies and they're all going to keep rejuvenating under a different umbrella. That is the Middle East. We can't fix that. You know, it's not like in Egypt, at least there's a there's a proud nation state, a history of it being a nation state, Sisi was more or less able to put that back together. That's a man that we could back. We could give him backing. There is no equivalent to Sisi that we could back in Yemen and Syria that would be worth our investment. It just doesn't exist at this point. And to merely focus on stupid things Obama did, which I agree, it doesn't answer. We're in charge now and we have to have a vision now. Everyone's making fun out of, oh, look, Susan Rice put the, you know, made, gave Russia control of getting rid of Syria's chemical weapons. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, I understand they did stupid things. But so what? Our, the answer is that we get involved in, and do what? Do what? Explain to me. Get rid of Assad? Walk me through what that looks like. What does that look like? Forget about the Russians, even. You know, that we'd probably be going up against them. But forget about that for a minute. You know, I, I think there's no reason we probably, if we, if we really wanted to, with relatively minimal casualties, although it wouldn't be worth a single casualty, I'd hate to, for anyone to die because of this, but, it, you know, we, we could dislodge Assad, no question. Same way we dislodge the Taliban command and control 
in um, Kabul pretty easily. We dislodged Saddam Hussein pretty easily. The question is, then what? Then what? You know, and this is where Israel comes into play. Everyone's learning the, long, the wrong lesson of Israel. So the neoconservatives on the one hand are like, look, Israel's taking a leadership role. They're bombing Assad. We should do it too. Um, and then, you know, conversely, kind of the Pat Buchanans who don't like Israel on the more, you know, whatever you want to call them, isolationist side, they're saying, Israel's a bunch of cr- crap weasels. They're sucking us into war. And the truth be told, they're both wrong. Israel's doing something very different, and we should actually learn a lesson from them. Notice Israel doesn't own other people's dumpster fires. They never do that. They don't own the bloods and the crypts. What they do is they look at their strategic interest and what threatens them. And at any given moment, if the crypts get close to their border, they'll zap them and get out. If the bloods get close to their border, they'll zap them and get out. They're not going to nation build. They don't get involved. And that's on their border. We're halfway around the world. So what's interesting is Israel launched an attack. And the cute thing was everyone's like, look, Israel's taking a leadership, you know, enforcing a red line, line against the use of um, chemical weapons by Assad. But if you look carefully, what Israel actually did, they, they didn't attack it had nothing to do with Assad's chemical weapons. They were actually attacking a, um, like like they've been doing the entire time, an Iranian target, kind of a Hezbollah weapons transfer. The whole corridor, because, you know, they're not, they're not concerned about the Syrian civil war with a particular outcome. What they're concerned about is there's a sideshow that once Iran and Hezbollah are operating there, they're using all that to have strategic advantages, both in terms of um, weapons transfers and also in terms of surrounding Israel on two fronts. Right now, Hezbollah's, Hezbollah's to the north, um, but they're also creating a front on the east in the Syrian Golan. So Israel attacks them, bombs any you know weapons transfer or whatever, and then they'll leave. It had nothing to do with the chemical weapons. In fact, I would venture to say, and I'm pretty confident of this, that they used the international community's virtue signaling over the chemical weapon attack as a way of attacking Hezbollah, which they wanted to do anyway, and you know get away with it without the usual condemnation. And based on the reaction to Israel's um, attack, I think they were right, you know, because they all think they're doing it to go after Assad. There's nothing to do with that. Now, obviously, Hezbollah is allied with Assad. But, you know, so what? You get rid of Assad, you go after Hezbollah, then you have the Sunni insurgency to deal with. Then they're going to be strengthened. There's really nothing you can do about it. It's a viper's nest with snakes and scorpions fighting each other. And the last thing you do is walk into the nest, get your head in there, and start refereeing it. You stand outside of it, if anything gets a little bit too close to comfort from either side, from multiple sides, you zap it. And again, so with Israel, it affects them. With us, it doesn't. We're halfway around the world. That's the lesson we should learn. I don't understand what's so hard to understand about this. You know, I've said this before. 
I supported the Iraq war. Not so much because I thought WND was a threat to us. You know, we get involved in that whole debate and where everyone's trying to relitigate the Iraq war. No, no, they're war weapons. Look, you see, they went to Syria. Assad has, has them. I, I actually always believed that was true. I never doubted that. To me, it was pretty unlikely that Saddam didn't have WMD and he brought war upon himself. That's not the issue. The issue is what do we do about it? Again, it's like being frustrated by someone and then punching yourself in the face or headbutting yourself against the wall. <laughs> We're hurting ourselves by doing it. It doesn't benefit us. So I supported the Iraq war. I was, I was kind of young. I was in college. That age. You know, I, I don't have a paper trail of me supporting it, so I could always, I could say, oh, I always thought, thought it was a bad idea. But no, I'm going to tell you, I actually, at that age, I thought it was a good idea, mainly because I felt that we looked weak with him, with Saddam violating the terms of surrender from the first Gulf War, and we never enforced it. And in a post-9-11 world, we need to, we need to project force. But what I never thought about was what pretty much nobody else in this political sphere is thinking about even 17 years later, 15, 16 years later, that they view everything in a vacuum. Saddam's bad. Kill him. Well, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree, but what, what's next? I mean, who's on the other side of that? And, and that's what I never looked at. The Sunni-Shia problems you had in Iraq that, oh, we're going to own this then. Now, there's one thing to say, man, someone's a monster. I don't care who comes after him. You can't get worse than this guy. We're just going to take him out. Now, okay, l let's just say that's a prudent strategy. But that's not what, we're, what we've been doing, and that's never what we're going to do because we fight politically correct wars. We Believe me, once we break it, we feel we have to own it. And we get in there. We take care of their electricity. We have our troops patrolling basically what's a... I call it social engineering and urban renewal within a combat zone. It's the worst possible thing because you have them spread out in a very precarious situation, kind of doing nation building. They're not on a war footing, on an offensive perimeter, a line. They're just kind of spread out in these urban areas or, or, or whether it's in mountainous areas in Afghanistan. And, you know, the endless insurgencies just take pot shots at our guys. It's horrible. There's nothing we can do with that. It's never going to work. That, that's been the enduring lesson since Vietnam. You either have to defeat the people into submission or you can't do it. You can't just look at the army or the military of the opposition or the, um, but particularly with, with, with Islamic civil wars. You got to look at the constituencies. You know me, I'm by no means an isolationist. I'm a hawk. I love killing bad guys. But then what? I, I love the pictures of the bombers going over and destroying Assad's targets, which, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we wind up seeing that within the next 24, 48 hours. But the question is, then what? Is that going to draw us into something further? We say, no, no, Trump doesn't want it, which I know he genuinely doesn't want it. So, it's just going to be bombing. But then, then the question arises that we kind of look weak with that because 
you know, you're, t- you're telling us, oh, there's a red line, but then he knows we have no appetite for regime change, so he'll laugh it off. You bomb an airport or something. I would say, well, well, Daniel, then let's do regime change. But, I mean, for the reasons I've been saying, it's, it's that's stupid too. Which is why you just got to root for casualties. Now, if you're going to sit in virtue signal to me about, you know, the chemical warfare or, you know, the people living horrible lives caught in between it, A, it's hard to tell. I mean, again, there's constituencies for both sides. There are genuinely always going to be innocent people and kids in these um, civil wars. But, I mean, here's the problem. You have a presence, some sort of Sunni or Shia Islamic presence in every Muslim country by definition. And now you have a secondary presence in European Western countries because of migration. But in every Muslim country in North Africa, which is getting farther down to Central Africa, and across the Middle East, and even into um, Eastern Asia, Southeastern Asia, you have Muslim countries. Every Muslim country, you have presence of Al-Qaeda, Iranian hegemony, ISIS, some similar group. What if I told you, we have to defeat them? Well, yeah, I, I, I wish. I mean, but like, it, it's a reflection of the population. It's got to come from within. You know, you're seeing to a certain extent in you know, places like Egypt, they're cleaning up. Places like Saudi Arabia, even, they've had enough of it. Let them take the lead on it. Why? But why should we become schleppers for all sides of an Islamic civil war? Let both sides be schleppers for us. I say that with Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Let, let them both fight against each other to our benefit rather than us doing the bidding of both sides. The opposite. America first. That's what America first means. I think we should have a very robust foreign policy. But that means something very different. It means the effective use of statecraft and soft power. Don't sit and throw at me, oh, Daniel, didn't you say Iran is a big threat? Iran is a legitimate threat. Absolutely. But let me say, let me ask you something. Let's say someone, um, let's say you have an an enemy. In their house, their estate, their place of operation is a soft target. Relatively. But then they go and run into an alley that's very, very precarious with some of their friends there. Am I going to follow them into the alley? Well, you got to defeat them. No, you go after their home. You go where it counts. I'm not going to get drawn into every dumpster fire. And that's the difference between Iran and Syria. You know, I stood before you, I can't believe this is already weeks ago, when you had those Iranian protests, and it looks like we looked at the time like we had a chance for regime change. And I listed six, seven things the administration could do, and they wouldn't even call for regime change. I don't mean get our troops involved. I mean just pour gasoline on the fire that was already there. Here's the thing. Unlike Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq, Iran is developing the capabilities like North Korea that will affect us, that could hit us. They have the desire to hit us and the messianic, you know, Islamic mentality that they just don't care. But also, it's redressable because it's not – you do have tribes in Iran, but mainly it's non-Arabic, which is a big deal. They have a proud nationalistic heritage from before the um, Mullahs in in 1979. They they still have a more pro-Western proclivities, and a lot of people there don't want it. 
So there's what to work with theoretically to use simple soft power and kind of targeted action to facilitate to just you know facilitate the people from inside sacking the mullahs. I'm all for that. But the problem is a lot of our people don't have an appetite for any action now because we basically just expended our deterrent, our resolve, our resources, our troops, our money on these endless dumpster fires. Syria is downstream. Don't tell me, oh, Daniel, we have to fight Iran in every theater, so go to Syria. Well, but then I thought you were fighting ISIS. You know, they're fighting each other. The best way to fight Iran is make a 50-50 insurgency there, have ISIS or whatever it's, uh, um, you know, analog winds up being, have, uh, have them give, give Iran a run for their money, which, by the way, they would have been their problem. They were marching on Baghdad. We had to own Baghdad as if it's our ally. Baghdad is Iran's ally. So we owned it with ISIS. We bailed them out. And what do we have to show for it? Now everyone's complaining, oh, they have so much power. I agree, and I warned about this. But, you know, look, that, that's Israel's issue now, and Israel is kind of taking care of it. I don't mind targeted strikes against Hezbollah. But... You know, it's not worth trying to tip the balance of a civil war there. There's nothing we could win by trying to own Syria the way we owned Iraq. Same thing with Yemen or Somalia or Afghanistan. If you want to go after Iran, go after Iran. Don't go to some ridiculous proxy that's a lot more complicated and a lot more nuanced than go after Iran. But what I'm telling you is, you, you, what I'm telling you is, we don't even need a massive military presence to do that. But we squandered it. This is the backwards priorities of our foreign policy. And finally, I want to get to another point here. You know, everyone's crying over chemical warfare, and, and, and it is terrible. But what, what do you want me to tell you? What do you want me to tell you? You know, there's something very dangerous about mass media and their ability to use yellow journalism now and just get us sucked into something with in, in a vacuum. Assad does this, let's do something. ISIS does this, you know, let, 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 let's do something. We have an opioid crisis, let's do something. Notice how everything is a, a haste to do something and we do the exact wrong thing. It just, you know, everything we do is completely backwards. So it's very scary that the media now has the ability to get us sucked into these things, you know, because it all, Ivanka, her sensitivities. Give me a break. Do you know where we do have chemical warfare that no one wants to talk about? Right here on our own border. Tens of thousands of Americans dropping like flies because of fentanyl-laced heroin. Fentanyl is WMD, and then you have carfentanil, which is literally like nerve agent, where probably upwards of, it's probably getting close to 1,000, the death toll from carfentanil, I would imagine by now. There's no, it's very new, so the data is not out yet. Um, I know in the state of Maryland alone, it was 100 people last year. I believe, or close to it, maybe 80. 
um, fentanyl, killing tens of thousands of people in this country. So this is no longer, a dr- as I said before, and by the way, go back and listen two episodes ago, our um, amazing podcast we had with Dr. John Lilly on the truth about the, the drug crisis that they like to call an opioid crisis um, and how the government is completely misdiagnosing it, completely fueling it, and then exacerbating it with their solutions. It's episode 210, by the way. Looks like it was actually last episode because this is this is episode 211. So check out episode 210. But anyway, there's your chemical warfare. This is no longer this ain't your parents' uh, drug crisis, you know, from the 60s. When even the marijuana was one one hundredth of its current potency. But we're not even talking about marijuana. We're not even talking about cocaine. We're not even talking about meth. We're talking about heroin, but really now fentanyl. And and the the potency and the purity of the heroin that they're producing. I mean, is it only that if it's a Middle East thing, it becomes sexy to the media and the politicians? I mean, let's say Assad came to our border, you know, went to Mexico and started launching nerve agent. Is it then kosher to put our our military there and and attack him? Is that what it's going to take to get us involved in Mexico? This is what I don't understand. Let's say I agree, okay, fine, you're right, we should get involved and fight Assad because no one should ever use chemical warfare anywhere in the world without us enforcing you know, international law against them. So then isn't there five million times more rationale that we should put on not just the National Guard to kind of assist the Border Patrol in the background, but our military to make an incursion into Mexico, clean out the drug cartels, and bomb the poppy fields. And then come back to me if we have a drug crisis of this magnitude. You know, you're always going to have drugs. You're always going to have a demand for it. I get that. But there's no demand for this. People are dropping like flies. It's one of the big questions. What what are the drug cartels even doing now with so many people dying? They're killing off their uh, their clients. I, I say this because, you know, in my community, just over the weekend, I got another, you know, one of these emails from our congregation re- regretting to inform the announcement of, of a passing of a, of a son of, of one of the members of the con- congregation. And in my entire life, I've never seen this. But this year, it's um, – I've seen three or four of these where basically – I'm not 100% sure, but – you know, in our community, if if someone had a son or a daughter that was a teenager in their 20s that was sick, you would know about it. And, you know, they set up uh, email lists for prayers and everything. You would kind of know about that. Usually it means there was a drug overdose. So, you know, it's permeated every community, even my community, where certainly it's, uh, you know, as far away from from, you know, the drug mentality as you can get. But you know, people's kids nowadays, we have depression. We have just so many problems with our youth. I shudder to think, you know, as my oldest son is seven turning eight, I dread living the next 10, 15 years, you know, what it's like. You could have a parent that does everything possible, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of problems. And then when you have the availability of the drugs, which we we've explained many times, thanks to the open borders, and it doesn't have to be this way, that it's that rampant and that cheap because of the supply, 
that they could get a hold of it, a lot of them, they're not even committing suicide. Now, their entire lifestyle, usually they go downhill, but what's happening now is they're just lacing this stuff with chemical warfare, essentially, and they just die. You know, as we had John Lilly on the show, he talked about fentanyl, how the few cases where it is used medically, sometimes for, for cancer patients, often those that are in hospice, they measure it in micrograms, not milligrams. So, I mean, that, that's what's happening here. I mean, I, I, name me one person who's been killed by a Syrian. Except, by the way, if we bring them in to the country through immigration. Again, it's a border immigration problem. And by the way, many from the Middle East, it's not just that we invite in 170,000 um, foreign students plus LPRs, green cards, and other visas from Muslim countries every year. And it's the fastest growing subset of immigration through our front door. There is a growing presence on our southern border of smuggling routes from Greece to Costa Rica and Panama. They fly in there and they're smuggled in through our border. So it is a border problem. And look, the president has been on message there. He has done a good job talking about the issue. But there is your military operation. And as I note in my piece on Thursday, I'll link to in show notes, this ironically is the one case where you would not need congressional authorization because it's purely a defensive act. It's not an offensive expedition as uh, George Washington referred to when he talked about needing congressional approval. It's purely defensive. If there's an inch of our soil that's unstable, that's defensive. You know, rather than having the buffer on our, on our side of the border, the buffer needs to be on the Mexican side of the border so that not one inch of American soil is, is destabilized by a foreign entity, much less the drug running. So if you're obsessed with the chemical warfare in Syria and you don't give a darn about what's going on here other than, oh, yeah, I mean, they do virtue signal over the opioid crisis, taking morphine out of the hospitals and having people in pain and going after doctors. But if you're not doing anything about the drug running, the drug trafficking, and the border sanctuary city issue, don't talk to me about Syria chemical warfare because we got it right here in our own con- in our own country, and that is killing tens of thousands of people. And it's redressable. It doesn't have to be this way. Whereas Syria, we don't have control over that. It doesn't have to be this way. But that, that's the perversion here. We don't use our military for what is a true strategic threat. And we get involved with whatever the media tells us. To, the, the, well, basically, whatever the media tells us is virtuous to get involved in. That's what we do. We're always responding to them. We should be building the drumbeat for military action in, in Mexico. You could take that to the bank. I don't care. I'll say it. Now, yeah, a lot of people have fatigue. They don't want to hear about opening up another front because we've been wasting our time with 50 million other fronts we shouldn't be involved in. But if we actually oriented our priorities, the three biggest priorities are Mexico, North Korea, and Iran. But not fighting stupid proxy wars in untenable theaters, but directly trying to do everything we can with the tools of statecraft to foster regime change. So in case some of you think I'm an isolationist, believe me, I'm not. 
It's about making the right choices. Because again, if I tell you that you're weak on the Crips if you don't get involved in the Bloods, you're not an isolationist. And conversely, if you tell me you want to get involved with the Bloods because, well, I don't want to look weak on the Crips, you're not a hawk. You're a schmuck. You're stupid. Someone's got to give a vision on foreign policy, military interventions, threat assessment. And again, you can't have this until you have some sort of congressional debate. But we'll never have that. If the media says it's virtuous, then the Democrats suddenly don't care about Trump sending troops. Because you know, usually the, the opposition party suddenly gets religious about enforcing the congressional war powers. But then, you know, if the media tells them it's okay, then it's okay. Because the, 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 the you know, jerks in, in Manhattan and Washington, D.C., that whole axis there that basically has no God in, in their life and they have the need to, uh, you know, just feel virtuous about themselves. They told them that, that it's okay to think like this. And by the way, you know, as we're talking about this, I just, I, I just can't help it. But um, these same media people that act all virtuous and everything, you know, like they care about things. Let me tell you something. I forgot to mention this on my last show. This this happened last week when Winnie Mandela, the wife of Nelson Mandela, passed away. And the media was just all over that. Like, oh my gosh, how amazing. She was just, I mean, she was like, she was like Mother Teresa. You know, l- let me just remind you. Quoting here from a New York Times article. Um... Winnie Mandela's ex-bodyguard tells of killings she ordered. But when Jerry Richardson, Winnie Mandela's chief bodyguard in the late 1980s and one of her closest confidants finally began talking today, his story was chilling. My hands are full of blood today because I would be instructed to kill and I would do, do like I was told. Mr. Richardson, 48, who was serving a life sentence for the killing of 14-year-old Stompy Saipay, described beating, torturing, and killing people whenever mommy which was Mandela, asked him to do so. He was officially the coach of a soccer team she sponsored, the Mandela United Football Club. But the team rarely played, he said. Mr. Richardson told of using garden shears to kill Stompy Saipay in 1989 after beating him for days. He said Mrs. Mandela participated in the beatings using her hands, fists, and a whip, but she never did any of the killing, he said. He said he had participated in four killings she ordered, saying that when he returned from one such killing, she embraced him and said, my boy, my boy. So, I mean, I don't, I don't need to hear the morality of these people. And I will just warn one other thing. Some of you who might disagree with me on this issue, but agree with me on immigration, will say, well, no, we need to get involved. Let me just tell you something. You're, you're very seamlessly and dangerously going up to the line where, where we're going to be forced to bring in more Syrian, Syrian refugees here. Because you already have some of the more left-wing neoconservative virtue signalers on this issue calling for us to do that. Because if you think about it, if you are going to tell us that we must get involved to stop chemical warfare and look at the children, look at the picture of the pictures of the babies, let me tell you something. Don't you have an obligation to then get involved in bringing them here? That's not going to save them. They're going to be martyred in civil war no matter what we do militarily. 
You got to bring them to our country. Now, obviously, anyone with a half a brain knows that they might look like innocent kids, and they are to a certain extent, to a large extent. But again, you bring them here, we're going to have the same story of all the people that we wound up so-called saving, offering asylum from Muslim countries, and they themselves wound up being problematic. Because again, in the war between the Bloods and the Crips, there is no winner on our side. It doesn't matter. And there's nothing we can do about their collateral damage. But there is a lot we can do about the chemical warfare against our own country. So, so frustrating. So frustrating. Anyway, we got a lot more coming this week on budget. With the Republicans' stupid balanced budget amendment. You know, isn't it funny how... Republicans refuse to make a play when the ball is in play, but then when the outcome is no longer in contention, they'll you know talk about, hey, we're going to make some big plays. Really? So you have a budget bill that de- the default is no budget bill passes. So that's your leverage to do what you want in the bu- budget, especially when you have control of Congress. No, they give the Democrats everything they want. Blow up the budget. Now they're coming back from their vacation and they're going to put a balanced budget amendment on the House floor. You know, an amendment to the Constitution that requires a two-thirds vote in both houses, not to mention the ratification by three-quarters of the states. And they'll say, look, you know, we, we <laughs> give us more Republicans. We need more Republicans. What a joke. And, and don't forget, it's not just the budget bills, the omnibus. In the budget cap bill in in February, in the budget cap bill in February, you know what they did? They automatically suspended the debt ceiling. I said that the whole time. If you're going to cave on this, at least retain the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is an automatic balanced budget because you just refuse to raise it. And you say, we're now going to prioritize payments, pay the interest on the debt first, and then Social Security, the military, and then we're going to force a discussion. That's how you force it. And to a certain extent, the Republicans did this a little bit, not as much as we fought for, but because of our fighting in 2011, we had the Budget Control Act with Republicans in control of just the House of Representatives, but not the Senate and the White House. How tragic and ironic is it that seven years later, in the very budget bill that they busted up the BCA and repealed it, They also unilaterally raised the debt ceiling while having control of all three branches. What a joke. What an utter joke. Oh, but take a look at the balanced budget amendment. So I'll I'll link to my piece on that as well so you can see it there. And and they wonder why why they're in trouble. I mean, they are facing a wave election beyond belief at this point. And by the way, it's funny, there's articles out now basically saying how Republicans have given up on the House, and it's all about the Senate. Guess what the messaging is? Marco Rubio tweeted out today as Rick Scott, you know, the governor of Florida, announced his run for governor for Senate. One of the most important roles of the Senate is confirming, confirming federal judges in SCOTUS. The road to growing the Senate GOP majority runs through Florida. Please join me in contributing to and voting for... Uh, Scott for Florida. <laughs> you, you know it's coming. It's all going to come down. Well, we can't lose the courts, even though, like, we kind of lost the courts already, you know, memo to uh, the political fools. 
we lost the courts. But it never ends. All all the all the you know it's it's kind of like a team missing a layup and or better yet refusing to take a layup shot and then three seconds before the the clock runs out um you you go for a half court shot yeah we're gonna do a balanced budget amendment and by the way as far as the balanced budget amendment is concerned you know even if you are really doing this and you mean to do it properly you want to do a spending limit not a balanced budget amendment, because a balanced budget amendment, you say you have to balance the budget, the Democrats will say, okay, so we have to raise taxes. And you actually codify that into the Constitution. And in this iteration, H.J. Res 2 is the bill that they're going to pass this week on the House floor. It actually allows for a simple majority to raise taxes, or as they call revenue increases. So you're basically forcing that into the Constitution, which is pretty insane. Anyway, we'll have a lot on that as well as watch for me on Mark Levin's TV show next Sunday night at 10 p.m. Um, I will be on with Charlie Kirk. He's a young, um, really young, I think he's only 24, um, up-and-coming uh, conservative. He has a, a conservative entire conservative youth movement and grassroots organization turning point USA. So uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I never met him, but certainly look forward to meeting him together with Mark Levin. So bookmark that on your schedule for 10 PM tomorrow night, um, Sunday night. I mean, until next time, God bless y'all. This has been another episode of the conservative conscience. Conservative conscience.